Nate's come out with another awesome tool for the swimming community. It's called Swim Nerd Live, and it allows the data and times from your actual scoreboard to be broadcast and viewed in real time on any smart TV, phone, or other device. It has all the information you're looking for, event, heat, lane, name of swimmer, times and places. One click on any device and they're watching your swim meet live in real time. Go to swimpractice.com to learn more. Okay, Bill Sweetenham, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? Good, Brett. Good to catch up. Yeah, good to see you. It's been a little while, huh? Very. Yeah. Not more than a little, but good. Yeah, too long. Um, mate, uh, just got the news that um, Nort Thornton passed away. I'm sure you, you know Nort pretty well. Nort was one of my great friends. I had a Churchill scholarship and I spent about six weeks with Nort way back in 1981, and I've remained great friends with Nort since. Mm. Nort uh, gave me an education by sharing his experiences. I sat with Nort every day at the Olympics in Spain, mm. and we talked he, he, his, uh, what he could give me, what I wanted from Nort was any information on speed and sprint events. Right. And as you know, at that stage, he, he uh, said to me he only came to the Olympics uh, to watch Alex Popoff swim because uh, he had uh, Matt Biondi and he felt that they were going to clash frequently, uh, m- uh, Matt being the older of the two and Alex being the young uh, pretender at that stage uh, to get up and race. So we had great discussions. Nort is just such a close and dear friend. Uh, and uh, him and Dick Handler were two old guys who were older than me, uh, marginally, who were willing to share uh, information. Um, uh, during that period, I spent with uh, Nort. I also spent it with Eddie Reese and yeah. Paul Bergen. So I had a great opportunity to learn uh, from in those days, and probably still are, the masters of uh, our sport. Yeah, uh, it's it a great learning opportunity. Nort, great thing about Nort, he was a good person and always, always willing to share. Yeah, and I caught up with him. I remember at Cal Berkeley uh, with Nort. Uh, I was he arranged for me to buy my first ever Apple computer and bring it back to Australia. And uh, the thing was about so big and so thick and bulky but I bought it through the school there and was able to bring it back to Australia. So go back a long way with Nord, a great man, fantastic coach, good person. Well, rest in peace, my friend. Uh, we're thinking yeah. of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing, mate, you know, I started this podcast about a year ago and, and in doing this, in the time I've done this, we've lost another couple of legendary coaches that I didn't get a chance to get on the podcast, just like Nort. You know, I'm kind of kicking myself. Don Talbot and Gennady Turetsky in the past 12 months have left left us here as well. So, you know, we're 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 losing some greats. And so for me, this is a chance to to talk to a great like yourself. And mate, when I read over your coaching resume, it's just it's. I mean, I, I, there's not many coaches who have coached from learn to swim to uh, Olympic world records, gold medals, and then also taken on 
leading the charge of nations as well. I mean, <laughs> it's incredible what you have done in the span of your career. Well, it's, uh, you know, it all started off in a remote country town, Australia, Mount Isa. Uh, my father was in the mining industry. I knew poverty. We had no money. And I started teaching learn to swim as a penalty from my father. And uh, I still remember the first boy I taught to swim. His name was Anthony Spargo. Anthony had one leg, the little my child. Mm. And he knew more about learning than I did about teaching. And I found that all the way through my career from learn to swim to Olympic champions, that uh, if you're an intelligent coach, you listen to the people you're working with and they will, will uh, teach you um, quite often more than you will ever teach them. So I learned that early in my career, listen to the athletes right. uh, because they have a depth of knowledge that you don't have because uh, an old coach uh, told me, he said, Bill, the athlete uh, uh, feels what you can't and you can see what the athlete can't. Mm. So it's a combination, a sharing combination to develop and learn. So uh, uh, because of the, my poverty situation uh, in Mount Isa, uh, uh, I, I started coaching as a penalty from my father and it just grew from there, from teaching. But I always wanted to keep my roots in teaching. So I, I had uh, business interests uh, with a, a man called Phil King, who was the head track and field coach for Australia. And... Uh, his wife, Debbie Flintoff, mm. uh, who won the Olympic gold medal in the hurdles in Seoul. So I had a long history of, of teaching. And uh, uh, I know it's not true, but I believe um, that if you had a teaching background, uh, you have a better opportunity to become a coach. I think as a coach, primarily you have to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. If you can't teach, it's very difficult to coach. And uh, Ben Titley, who a uh, great sprint coach, yep. would argue with me all the time because he never was a teacher as such. He never taught learn to swim. Right. So I listened to Ben, and then Ben says, well, uh, uh, <clears throat> if I had to spend time teaching, it would be time away from the coaching. But he, uh, when you watch Ben, he is a teacher. He does teach. So yeah. I guess you don't have to have, as I had, a teaching background uh, to become a great coach, but you have to be able to teach. Yeah. So it's a mixed message there. So Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. How did you go from the learn to swim? When did you get the Olympic bug? How did you get to coaching Olympians? Okay, it was, uh, I had a swimmer who lives in the United States now, Anthony Byrne. Uh, Anthony lives in the Chicago area and I coach him to be, he was one of my first ever uh, national representatives from Mount Isa. Right. And Mount Isa had a great swimming culture, sporting culture, because there was nothing else to do. Uh, it's a remote country town. The, the company put a lot of money into sport and facilities. So hot, uh, dry climate in Mount Isa, a lot of people swam. It was easy to sell a swimming mentality to people who lived where nothing else was happening. Yeah. And you had a, a good facility to teach and coaching. So 
Anthony, uh, there was a few others, of course, that, uh, that came along. And uh, Christine Dallet, uh, a girl who's now probably the best teacher I've ever seen, who runs Learn to Swim across Australia. And uh, so that grew my base of knowledge. Uh, remember that uh, the old coaches, like myself, uh, started out with experience-based knowledge. In other words, we had experience mm -hmm. and we used that experience to gain knowledge. But the young coaches today have a much greater advantage and that they have knowledge-based experience. In other words, they can learn before they experiment. In my day, we experimented before we learned. Yeah. And uh, that's, uh, that's not a good place to come from. But many of the old coaches did that. They had a swimming career and then went into a coaching career and they delivered in their coaching what their experience was, uh, which is somewhat flawed. Now, today, the young coaches have great opportunities to learn and listen uh, before they start the, the, the journey. But uh, it was one Saturday morning. I was at the Mount Isa pool. I got a call. Mount Isa went on to be the third top country club in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of luck uh, was there. But anyway, as a result of that, uh, Stephen Holland's parents rang me and said, look, Laurie Lawrence has just resigned from coaching at Carina. Would you be interested in coming down and coaching Stephen and the Carina club? And, of course, I accepted that uh, with great intimidation because that be way above where I'd ever been before in my coaching. Like it was a million miles above my right. station. So I went down and uh, coached for Karina and Karina went to be uh, the number two club in Australia uh, uh, behind Terry Lathicole's club in Sydney. How so old were you uh, when you took that over? I was very young. I was uh, 24 years of age, oh, 25. Wow. Mm. I said 24, but my wife just corrected me. Uh, 25. <laughs> she does that pretty good. That's good. That's, that's, good. that's why I married her, because she knew more than I did. But, uh, but 25, I guess. Yeah. So right. uh, that was one year before the 76 Olympics. So Stephen had to go into the Olympics with a coach that was just learning the ropes. Mm. And then learning the ropes from experience, not from knowledge. Right. So that started the journey. Luckily, since then, 1976, I've been blessed with having been part, a significant part, of a podium athlete at every Olympic since then. And uh, uh, I feel blessed that I've had the opportunity to work with some really great people, coaches and swimmers. Sure, so absolutely. I've learned, I've learned uh, from every uh, swimmer that I've ever coached. There's not a swimmer that's come through my uh, corridor of learning that I haven't benefited from. I've tried to watch and listen and learn from every single athlete I coached. And I think the good coaches, the great coaches, have that ability to learn cumulatively from the athletes that come through their care. Because they're not, as you know, Brett, they're not the same. Yeah. There's no two athletes. When I had Michelle Ford and Tracy Wickham, both world record holders in the 815 and four, but they were completely different. The white fibre makeup of Michelle Ford was completely different 
to the white fibre makeup of, of Tracy Wickham. Uh, Tracy Wickham's recovery was unbelievable. Uh, Michelle struggled a bit with the recovery. Michelle was a great 200 flyer, as well as a great 400 free and 800 free. And, and Tracy uh, was a great 100 flyer, but couldn't swim the 200 because the technique broke down in butterfly. So every jigsaw requires a different approach. Uh, every athlete requires a different approach. So your learning has to be continual in coaching. Yeah, I was going to say that, like for coaches these days, everything's at your fingertips. I mean, I can get on and, and get a wealth of information just by, by sitting here for the next hour and clicking videos. And I mean, I watched, I watched you, um, lead some conferences here before we got on this and I was watching you talk. And so, I mean, the information is just at our fingertips, but back then in the seventies, when you're coaching these Olympic, you know, world record holders, how, how did you know what to do? How, how did you know programming? How did you know, you know, season planning, things like that? Oh, that's a difficult question, Red. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions made right. by people like me in those early days. Uh, what I stole from every single coach that I could find. Right. Whether it was swimming, track and field, mm. uh, horse racing, I went to every athletic exposure that I could find mm. and I took knowledge. I, I, I stole knowledge from other people. So you were just inquisitive uh, as well? Very. Right. I, I, I was the greatest... Uh, thief of information that you could possibly find because I had no other way to learn. Right. There was no coaching courses. And, and the, the big thing is they, no coaching course, even today, you know, teaches you psychology. Right. And uh, I, I soon realised that uh, I had to have uh, more information and more knowledge than I currently had. So I, I went and learnt from everybody I could. Mm. And that's why in 1981, uh, I was 31 years of age. I got a Churchill scholarship and I travelled the United States because I knew that I needed to have information about all events and mainly strength and conditioning. Mm -hmm. So I went and I spent time with Eddie Reese, great opportunity, Paul Bergen uh, and... Uh, Randy Reese was there at that stage in Texas. And Dick Handler, uh, I went to Dick's, and Dick was very, very uh, forthcoming with information, and so was Nord. Uh, and uh, I went and spent time with Mark Schubert uh, in Mission Viejo, because uh, Stephen had spent some time there, and Mark was very accommodating. A lot of people in those days were very anti-Mark Schubert and uh, were didn't like his approach or attitude. I never found that. I, I stayed with Mark and his wife uh, for a couple of, well, quite a few weeks. And he was very sharing and very accommodating. So uh, I, uh, I think Greg Troy says the same thing, that my generation, same as Greg Troy and any uh, Reese, was based on learning from others that have been before you. The old saying, Confucius said, if you want to know what lies ahead, talk to those people coming back. So I, I bought into that process. So I think uh, 
stealing information uh, uh, or recruiting knowledge was a big plus in those days. Like you said, yeah. now everything's at your fingertips. If you want to know what training sessions Katie Ledecky does, you get on the computer and Google and you can find any information that you want, but you can't get the information that tells you how to coach. Right. You can get the information of how to train, mm-hmm. the physical aspect of it, but you don't get the knowledge of dealing with people, the neural and sensory, how to coach. It's a feel um, that is rare, and, and uh, I feel it's hard to understand because uh, no two people are the same, and therefore, because of that, no two athletes will be the same. How you treat one is maybe a little different than how you treat the other uh, physically and, and neurally. Yeah. So, yeah, I was going to say that, that that can be the great separator with with the great coaches, right? But I don't think it's any different these days. Like the things that you were talking about then, I travel the country too now, Bill, with with my with the clinic business that, that I'm in with Fitter and Faster. And I get to see a lot of coaches and, and look, I, I meet a lot of coaches and just like anybody, you you judge people on, on when you meet them. And the great coaches that I meet are the ones that are in, inquisitive, just like you were. You know, they ask a lot of great questions. They share information. I find that coaches that are stuck are the ones that really aren't as interested in the growth of themselves. You know, they, they kind of just have a way of doing things. That's how they're going to do it. Everybody has to abide by it. And so I think, you know, to give yourself credit to, to say now, now you can look back on your career and say, I'm a great coach. But the reason you are a great coach is because you did those things early on. Yeah. I think um, my early years of coaching, I was very, uh, this is how you have to do it. This is why you have to do it. This is what we're going to do. So nowadays, or the last 20 years, I've asked questions. Mm-hmm. I, I, rather than tell them what to do or how they should do it, I say, is there a better way? Right. And uh, I've asked many an athlete. Uh, uh, the last world record holder I coached was a girl called Lauren Boyle. And uh, Lauren was 26 when she broke the world record in the 1500. And uh, Lauren was a great joy to coach because uh, she was mature, had the attitude of a 14 year old, uh, 26 in a, in a distance event, very rare combination. Unfortunately, she came up against Ledecky, yeah. who uh, was an exceptional athlete. But uh, Lauren uh, would think about her career and her swimming very deeply. He didn't just come to the pool, train and go home. So I learned to ask questions of athletes. I learned to say, tell me about this. Tell me about that. Tell me what you feel, what you think. Mm-hmm. Tell me, have we, got, have we got it right? Is there a better way? Because uh, I did a, uh, a Zoom meeting quite a while, but a few years back. It wasn't a Zoom then, but... I put all the girls that I've coached in the 400, 800 free and I asked them a, a group of questions and uh, it was quite funny. And the first question I asked them is, uh, uh, was I too hard or too easy as a coach? Mm-hmm. And uh, the girls, well, that was quite funny. <laughs> and the response was, 
uh, Bill, once all the jokes had settled down, the, the response was overwhelmingly, Bill, at the time you coaches, coached us, we thought you were way too demanding. Right. However, in today's world, we don't think you were. We don't think you were too demanding. We didn't understand it. And I thought, that's the problem. I've got to get them to understand. Mm. So that was my first lesson in later years. And the second question was, uh, did you get your best result possible training with me? And uh, the same question brought about the same humour in the girls. But they said, no, we think we got our best result uh, training with you. So I thought, well, I got a positive response two out of three questions. I'm not going to ask the third one. <laughs> uh, one of the girls said, Bill, we're all grown up now. Ask the third question. <laughs> so I said, given your opportunity in today's world, would you train with me again? If you had a choice, would you come back and train with me? Well, the response was completely negative. It was great, hilarious uh, uh, comments. and uh, But eventually they came back and said, yeah, we probably would yeah. uh, because we understand where you came from now and why you wanted us uh, to live to a higher standard in the pool. Um, and uh, so I think those three questions are questions coaches should ask their athletes when they retire. Mm. You should sit down with your athletes and ask them, did I do the best job with you as an athlete? Did, yeah. did I get the best result from you? Yeah. If you're given a choice, would you train with me again? Brutally honest and hard, yeah. but I think that's, that's where you learn from. That's where I learn from anyway. Yeah. So I wanted to know with each athlete, did I get the best result from? Uh, uh, did I achieve what you felt you were capable of achieving? And if the answer is no, and of course, when they're retired, the athletes will be, can be very honest with you. So I think, I think you have to go through that process if you want continual learning. Yeah, that's a good exercise. I like that. I, I wish I had have done that more often. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. It's sometimes it's not what you want to hear, but it's sometimes yeah. what you need to hear. Yeah, yeah. So I think ask questions. Always ask questions of your athletes and be prepared to listen. They have yeah. much to teach you as you have to teach them. Well, and just in observing a lot of the great coaches these days, I think that's how they are being successful these days. You know, they're, they're asking a lot more questions. They're listening to their athletes a lot more. The athletes have an input. They're, they're explaining to the athletes why they're doing things and the athletes have an understanding before they do it. Okay, I understand why he wants me to do that now. And that seems to be what the best coaches are doing these days. So, um, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I agree yeah. totally. Now, listen, uh, the Australian Institute of Sport was uh, an incredible concept and, and obviously had a huge impact on Australian swimming. You were there for kind of the genesis. How did it come about? We, it came about uh, initially, uh, as you know, I coached Stephen Holland at the 76 Olympics yeah. where we didn't achieve uh, what we wanted to achieve. We got a bronze medal instead of a gold and uh, Brian Cadell uh, uh, won the gold medal. And it was the only medal in swimming at those Olympics. And instead of praising myself and Stephen, we got criticised. But uh, uh, Malcolm Fraser uh, decided 
that uh, Australia needed a centralised location uh, to help sports people, mm-hmm. not just swimmers, sports people. And uh, uh, there was a, uh, a minister for the territories and uh, he came up to Brisbane and saw me and said, Bill, I want you to come and work at the uh, this new... And now he was the Minister for Territories. And I said, uh, surely uh, you should be uh, coming from the Minister for Sport. Right. He said, the min- Minister for Sport will get sidetracked by should it be in New South Wales, should it be in Brisbane, should it mm. be in Victoria. As the Minister for Territories, the bulldozers are going to start working next week. Mm. I have the plot of land. It's my decision. And I'm going to build an institute of sport in Canberra. Wow. He said, if I try to build it anywhere else, I can't do it because I'm the Minister for Territories mm. and it will go to the Minister for Sport who will then have to face Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, uh, territorial attitudes. Right. So, so he, he started. He just, he just got the tractors in and wow. started. The visionary and, right uh, there. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, he made... A, a great decision. Now, uh, the, the best thing the Australian Institute of Sport did, in my view, was that we set standards where the states then thought, wow, we've got to start our own. Right. Otherwise, we're going to lose all our talent to Canberra. So Brisbane started, the Queensland Academy, New South Wales started, Victoria yep. started. And so the state institutes, for want of a better word, grew and provided opposition for Canberra, but the benefit was that they, they stimulated other other states and other uh, uh, either Liberal or Labor parties to buy into the concept of starting state institutes of sport. Mm-hmm. They might have done it in the state academies or different names, but that's what they were. So they then, as they do today, provide support for athletes in a state-based program. I think, I think that the people that allowed the Australian Institute of Sport to die should be held accountable at some stage. I think they made massive errors and uh, it was political, uh, largely. And sport didn't defend the AIS and they've paid a price ever since because if they had to kept the AIS, not in its original state, they had to modified it and changed it and made it Grown with time. Right. So the AIS was in a time warp. No one had the leadership to change it. No one had the leadership to make it better. They just kept it going, the same old, same old. I left the Institute when the Department of Sport, which was based in downtown Canberra, came in over the top of the AIS. Never, ever work for bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. It's a rule I've stuck to. I do not like bureaucrats. They have no knowledge of sport. Yeah. They're destructive in the way they do things and they're never held accountable. Uh, so uh, I just have a dislike for bureaucrats who have, they might have played uh, hockey for the ACT. Yeah. Somehow they got into a job in the Department of Sport and then the Department of Sport moved. So as soon as I saw the Department of Sport coming over the top of the AIS, 
I knew it was time for me to leave. And yeah. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Wow. That's a, that's a nice move. Was. Very good move for me. Yeah. Uh, four years. Uh, tested my philosophies on coaching. Um, Hong Kong had never won <coughs> in recent history, recent history a medal at the Asian Games. And uh, we were able to win a silver medal in the women's 53. Uh, we were able to win a bronze medal in the 4x100 relay and uh, yeah, developed quite a program. The guy that recruited me to Hong Kong was a man called Paul Brattel, who had a sporting background. He was a national basketballer and uh, who, who led the AIS and then went to Hong Kong and recruited me to Hong Kong. So... Uh, 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 it was a hell of a challenge, but one that I loved. I loved Hong Kong right. because it, it tested all my theories under uh, chaos. Mm. Uh, there was no uh, super talented athletes when I first arrived there. I had to recruit, look, change. I couldn't even get pool space. So Wow. Challenges. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, Mate, one of the other things I was uh, reading about you and, and learning about you is before some of this happened, you, you were in a pretty severe accident at the age of about 30, right? Uh, it was uh, uh, 33. 33, okay. Yeah, what happened? Uh, I was in Germany having a three-way meet with the AIS, um, uh, uh, Germany, West Germany, mm -hmm. and uh, Sweden. And uh, it was held in a place called Karlsruhe. Uh, Karlsruhe was once the capital of, of uh, West Germany. And uh, uh, we were going to the pool, but I have a love uh, for Formula One. Right. So we were going to Hockenheim uh, in a police, an old police car uh, that was given to us or loaned to us because we stayed at the police school at Karlsruhe. And uh, I was going... Uh, with Dennis Persley and another coach called Craig Crozier. Anyway, we went on cobblestones, door opened, round a corner, door slipped wide open. I went to grab it. Out I went uh, oh. because I missed it. I missed the right hand on the door, left hand on there, and I hit a post and my leg was embedded in the ground. Oh, jeez. Uh, the bone, when I lifted it up, there was a mushroom on top of my bone and my ankle was down below my knee. Oh, God. And I spent, I spent uh, 17 weeks in hospital in, in Germany and the next three years on crutches. And uh, Was there any thought so at, at, at all to cut it off? They, uh, before, uh, when I, they flew me by helicopter uh, to the hospital at Heidelberg and the doctors said to me, your leg will have to come off. Oh, wow. So they didn't think they could save it. And uh, I was resigned to that fact before the operation. But then uh, after the operation, I moved my right leg over when I was conscious to feel, and I felt my left foot still there. <laughs> I couldn't believe how happy I was. That was probably one of the happiest days of my life, wow. that my left leg, my left foot was still there attached. But uh, in hindsight, I might have been better off to lose it then. Really, yeah, because I've I've seen you, you know, years later, the the struggle that you have to walk. I mean, so you think it might have been better just to take it off at the time? 
When I was younger, 33, I would have adapted, used to go prosthesis, yep. and uh, I probably would have been in a better spot today than yeah. I am now. Yeah. My leg gives me grief. Yeah, yeah. But it's never stopped me in my coaching. Brett, it's never held me back on. Well, never... I actually heard, you know, you say that you learned a lot from it. It helped you grow. Absolutely. The, the, the learning from that accident where I had to deal with adversity, I had to understand that uh, 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 to deal with uh, that injury mm-hmm. in everything I did, I've never missed a day's training, coaching, uh, if I wasn't in hospital. Right. So every time I wasn't in hospital, I was on the pool deck. Wow. So that teaches you. I was lucky. I worked with a coach at the AIS called Ken Wood. Yeah. And then Bill Nelson, both great people. And they understood the battle I was going through. But uh, I think the one thing coaches have to be is adaptive. If you haven't got an adaptive mentality, then the curve ball is going to win. The curve ball is always going to get you. And I had to deal with not allowing the curve ball to get me through my life. Yeah. Wow. Very well said. Yeah. I mean, uh, life, life's not easy for anyone really, but especially when you're, you're in an accident like that and faced with not being able to walk properly, that's extremely difficult. Yeah. I could never play with my kids. I could never swim again. Uh, uh, uh. I could yeah. never do things most normal people do, but I didn't. I never blamed anyone. I never held anyone to account. I just got on with it and lived as best I could. Yeah. Um, what was your relationship like with Don Talbot? I had a very close relationship with Don. Uh, it was fiery at times. Mm. Uh, we had a lot of uh, uh, the funny story I tell about Don, and this is AIS days. Uh, Dennis Pursley was the, the, the men's coach and I was the women's coach. Uh, Dennis had superiority uh, in, in that position. And uh, Dennis wanted to buy, outfit the gym with a certain type of gym equipment. Mm-hmm. Nautilus he wanted. Right. Dennis wanted to fit the whole gym because Nautilus was the go in those days. And Don wouldn't sign it. Don had just done a personal ad for an opposition company with gym equipment. <laughs> and Don would sign the, the, the uh, document to uh, give Dennis permission yeah. to buy all this Nautilus equipment, which is ultra expensive. So he said to me one day, he said, listen, you're good friends with Don. Why don't you go down and get him to sign this uh, order form? Stupid. I went down. Everybody was in a very closed atmosphere. So I went in to see Don, knocked on the door, went in. I started giving him the sales pitch about how we should have Nautilus uh, equipment in the gym rather than the uh, equipment that he had done a personal ad for. I could tell he was getting agitated. It's not hard to agitate, Don. <laughs> and uh, I said to him, Don, uh, when I, I swam with Don. Oh, right. Oh, okay. And he all, always did this. Pushed his finger into your chest, and it used to irritate the hell out of me. It was just got all my anger vibes going. And I, uh, I got it, by the way. I, I had it. <laughs> so he started pointing at me over the desk. I said, "Don, 
if you keep that up, I'm going to walk out. With that, he stood up and grabbed his plastic mobile, a plastic phone console, those mm. old yeah. huge consoles, <laughs> smashed it on the desk. Well, bits of plastic went left, right, centre, and the whole thing busted. So I, I got up. And he was sitting opposite me, and the door was about on my right. Mm. So I said, Don, I'm going. I'm leaving. As I got up, there was a, uh, a rubber bush a tree about oh, three or four foot tall as a pot plant near the door. So I said, oh, I'm going to tip that over as well. I'm going out. <laughs> so I grabbed it and hurled it at him. It bounced across the desk. And when I looked at him before I left the office, he's sitting there with big potches of uh, 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 mud all over his face, up the wall. And as I walked out, the girls in the office had their heads down. They'd heard all the commotion. I walked down the corridor towards the swimming office with Don following me, telling me, publicly and loudly that I was fired. <laughs> uh, pack my bags and get out of here. So I walked in. Luckily, the door of the office was one where you could lock on one side and not on the other. Mm. Slammed it shut so he couldn't get in. So he's bellowing on the door telling me I was fired. Dennis Fursley sitting opposite me, killing himself laughing. <laughs> so then I abused Dennis. So now I abused Dennis, got Don telling me I'm fired. So everything, the good part of Don in those days, he didn't continue to keep it, but the good part of Don in those days, never held a grudge. Right. The next morning I'm sitting at my desk, he walks in and he's got the order form that's all crumpled up, got coffee stains all over it and he's flattened it out. He said, here, there's the order form signed and if anything goes wrong with this equipment, I'm blaming you. <laughs> He points at Dennis. I know he put you up to it, <laughs> but I'm not going to blame him. You were the idiot that came down and tried to get him. So stupidly, I never learned. I said to Don, I said, Don, can I have my job back as well? <laughs> he goes ape again. He just goes crazy again. <laughs> so I thought, nah, when you get a win, be happy with the win. Don't go the extra, the extra bit. So I had a great relationship with Don. Always yeah. did. We never saw eye to eye, but uh, uh, in in the uh, Olympics for Atlanta, uh, Australian swimming had had a bad preparation, hadn't been good. And uh, Don said to me, "Used to meet myself and Don used to meet every Tuesday, and uh, sometimes down at his place at Corumban, sometimes up at my place, and uh, he had a motorbike in those days." And uh, uh, never kept it long because he kept falling off it. But uh, <laughs> he uh, would come up to me on the odd work and I'd go down to him. And he said to me, he said, Bill, if you were me, what would you do given the situation we're in? So I said, well, I'll have to think about it a bit. So I went home and wrote a document, which I still have, of how I would react in the situation he was facing. Right. You know, poor performance rebellion uh, so I wrote down a whole list of things at the next meeting I gave it to him never said thanks <laughs> never said this is great or this is crap <laughs> but over the next six or eight weeks I saw all the strategies being implemented <laughs> and I thought yes that's good <laughs> so 
I was smart enough because of my earlier experience not to say to him, I told you so. Or, <laughs> so he went ahead and implemented nearly all the strategies I'd written down for him yeah. without any acknowledgement. But I didn't have a problem with that because I knew Don's personality. And, uh, knew. But uh, I owed Don a great favour uh, and that when I had my accident in Germany, uh, Don, through the minister at the time, arranged for me to be flown home in two first-class seats uh, with the doctor, Peter Fricker, coming over to escort me home. Mm. So uh, not many people would have done that. Yeah. You know, two first-class seats. And so, so when you needed so him, he was a man you could rely on. Absolutely. Yeah. I, Don, for me, was a man I could trust. Yeah. And uh, he would defend you whether you were right or wrong. He would defend you to the hilt. He just, and then after it was over, he said, you silly bugger, you shouldn't have done that. You should have done this or that. Right. So he was, he was stand by you. Yeah. He lost a bit of that in his later years. Yeah. But uh, he was, he was probably uh, in sport in Australia, the only visionary leader. I use the word visionary leader in sport that I ever worked for or saw or understood. He had a, I mean, he was hopeless. Well, Don had a vision. Yep. He wasn't good at logistics or organisation, mm -hmm. but he had man management skills and vision like no other. And he was probably the only coach, only leader yep. in Australian sport in my years that, that – uh, People say to me, who would you go and learn from? Because I tried to learn from everybody. Yeah. Don had a vision about him and an understanding of people that few others had. Right. I can't think of another leader in sport, in Australian sport, not just swimming, during my time that I appreciated and valued more than Don. Yeah. Yeah, look, a lot of people at the time thought he was a tyrant, but um, we were we were becoming a team and becoming very successful. And when you look back on that time period, you think, you think how lucky you were to be part of it. I, I, I certainly do. And, and look, we had other great people around like yourself. Don't get me wrong. I'm not giving Don all the credit, but certainly he was good at the time for Australian swimming. I, uh, when I swam for Don, I swam from me. I went from Mount Isa down to train with Don. Uh, he, he had another swimmer down there from Mount Isa, a guy called Johnny Oravena a 400 IM swimmer, and uh, uh, Don was aware that I had no money, that my family had no money. On my 16th birthday, uh, Don came to me and just gave me a, an envelope with a card in it and uh, no happy birthday or best wishes or anything. So here, so I opened it. Here were all the coaching fees that my parents had paid for the last 12 months. Wow. They gave me back every cent that I that my parents had paid uh -huh. uh, coaching fees. So not many coaches do that. No. Not many no. people do that. So 
No. Well, the, you, you certainly did have a special relationship then. It goes way deeper than just the norm, but uh, that's pretty extraordinary. Um, mate, you've, you've seen it all in terms of human performance, like coming from, you know, Stephen Holland, um, like you said, to, to where we are these days with what um, people like Caden Ledecky and um, Caleb Dressel and these types of athletes are doing. How are we getting faster and where is the limit? I don't think there's any limit. I don't want to think there's any limit. There probably is, but I just prefer to think there's no limit. Mm. I just prefer, if I put it, say, a limit, then that's where you're going to stop, you know. Because I'm sure you thought there were limits 20 years ago and then we've blown those limits out of the water, right? I never saw limits. I never saw limited opportunity or limits on physical performance. Um, I don't think... For me, they didn't exist. Right. Uh, I might have been stupid, but um, I never saw limitations on athletes. You know, I hate to hear coaches say, oh, uh, they're not committed or they not this or not that or they haven't got talent. Right, yeah. Uh, I, I hate that because every child, every youth, every senior athlete you coach has potential. Yeah. Has unbelievable potential. If you can't get that potential, then it's you as a coach, mm-hmm. not the athlete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't think there are limits. I just prefer not to think that there's limits. Now, uh, we thought Mark Spitz way back, no, the world thought seven Olympic gold medals was the limit and his times were the limit. Well, hell, yeah. that wouldn't even make a final now. Yeah. So I don't think uh, there's limits. I think uh, we as coaches, have had the benefits of experience and of knowledge. We've studied. I talk to Michael Bowl a lot. Michael Bowl and Chris Nesbitt and a couple of other coaches meet every Tuesday, the same as I used to meet with Don. And it's on the philosophy of uh, Tuesdays with Maury. I don't know if you read that book. Right. It's Tuesdays with Bill. Mm. And uh, uh, I talked to Michael and Chris uh, Chris was my right hand in Britain and now runs the program at uh, TSS. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Michael Bowl, who I've had a long, long relationship with, uh, runs the program at Griffith University. And uh, we talk about this frequently on Tuesdays. Solve a lot of problems in the world on Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happens. Over breakfast or problems. coffee? What are, you, what are you guys doing? Coffee and coffee and a breakfast lunch situation. Right. Yeah, good idea. Usually, as coaches, we're having lunch and breakfast at about 10 o'clock. Yeah. So, so I talked to Michael and Chris about the limits and where it's going to finish and where it's... And uh, I think we all agree that uh, while you're more educated with recovery, uh, you're more educated with an experience, with the cycle training during a week, and the loading of uh, work early in the season and uh, the anaerobic approach to, to training and performance. Uh, uh, I, I think this, uh, the coaches of today are a lot, lot better than us older coaches and that they have an understanding of cyclic training, for want of a better word, reverse cycle periodization, anaerobic approach to training, uh, the capability of the athlete, to, to do uh, 
so much. In the old days, Brett, uh, me, Laurie, quite a few others, uh, we had an attitude to sprint training that the distance swimmers would do 15 400s and the sprinters would do three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so wasn't a very good concept. But <laughs> m- most of us didn't want to coach sprinters. They were too hard, too difficult. Um, they didn't fit into the big squad uh, process of having uh, 200. I mean, when I was coach Stephen Holland, I had 200 kids in the group every afternoon. Yeah. So specialisation didn't exist. I think today, specialisation is the key. Giving each individual a specialised approach is the key to improve performance. You get an athlete and you look at them and say, what do they need? What physical training do they need? And what coaching do they need? What age do you think that starts at? I don't think it has to start too early, but I'm not... uh, one of the coaches that pushes huge volumes early in an athlete's career, unless it's technique driven. Right. Up until 12 or 13, it's just technique. Whether they train four times a week, two times a week, 10 times a week, it's got to be technique based Um, because your technique is going to pay dividends. Yeah. I've had so many swimmers, Brett, that I feel frustrated about. And one swimmer I coached was a guy called Robert Bruce. Uh, came out of the Carlisle Club. Yeah. Guy was an athlete, like there's no tomorrow. Tall, rangy guy, but he'd been practicing crappy technique since he was about 10. So I get him at 16, 15. He got someone with great athleticism, but lousy technique. How do you turn that around? So he becomes a rescue mission rather than a performance mission. You're trying to rescue an athlete from awful technique or inefficient. See, efficiency always, without any exception, defeats fitness. If you're efficient, you can get get fitness. Right. If you're inefficient, all the fitness in the world is not going to help you. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree with that. Hundred percent agree with that, um, mate. I'm interested in this, uh, this, this taking on Great Britain, right? So, when they first approach you to say come out and and lead um, the nation, right? What are the things that you see where you feel like I, I can make significant change there? Because it's clear that you did in the results. I mean, the in the time that you were there the results improved dramatically. So how do you do something like that? What do you do? Well, first thing, Brett, I was uh, uh, unanimously voted by the Australian swim coaches to lead, take on the job as head coach on Don's retirement. And, uh, and Don couldn't make up his mind whether he's retiring or still going. Right. So I, I waited about 12 months and it seemed like he wasn't going to retire even though the coaches had voted me unanimously to take over from him, yeah. I thought, <clears throat> I've done that job before. <clears throat> what do I learn by doing it again? Mm-hmm. See, I've tried to live a life of learning. I tried to learn something new every day. If I can't learn something new every day, that day has been a waste of time wow. in my life. So I wanted to have a life of learning. 
So Lee Nugent um, uh, was commissioned, I was commissioned to do a review of uh, British swimming and uh, they contacted me and said, look, if you have any intentions of accepting the job as uh, performance director of British swimming, we don't think you should do the review because you're going to review something you're going to take. So I contacted Lee and I said, Lee, uh, are you interested in doing this review? Lee did a remarkable job of the review. Did a, he picked it up straight away. He went in and uh, so he did a complete review of British, English, Scottish and Welsh swimming uh, before my arrival. Okay. Now, one of the things I did, I got one of my ex swimmers from Hong Kong to look at the improvement or lack of in British swimming. And I said, if they continue to improve at this rate, how long is it going to take me to get the result? And the result I wanted was the top three in the world. British swimming was nowhere near that. They were miles away from it. Yeah. And then as a girl and uh, one of my ex swimmers, she went through it looked at Lee's report and went through it. And she said, Bill, at the current rate of process, uh, progress, it's going to take 77 years <laughs> for you to achieve what you want. And she said, even that will require steep improvement. Well, I knew then that I had to buck the system. I had a philosophy, and I still have, that you don't change anything by more than 10% at any one time. Otherwise, you end up not knowing what worked, what didn't work. <coughs> so I thought, well, my 10% rule is not going to work. This, this is not going to. So when I went to Britain, I knew that the expectation was 77 years. I had four. So after about three, I thought, I'm going to have to accept the second term, mm. which I did on several conditions, which they never stuck to. But I, uh, I took on a second turn. And the one thing I changed, the one thing I changed, I brought in a new group of young coaches, a, a vibrant uh, group of coaches, Sean Kelly, Ben Titley, uh, Dave McNulty, yeah. uh, a whole group of young, bright, intelligent coaches, the only thing they lacked was experience. Right. I thought I can give them experience personally and I can send them. And we had a process in those days. If you've got a swimmer on the team and you didn't make the team, you've got two weeks at the American Swim Coaches Clinic and, and two weeks in a club program in the United States or Australia. You could have a choice. Mm -hmm. I wanted them in a club program because we didn't have anything that resembled a university uh, program in the United Kingdom. So I think that was the key. And the funny story is that in my first uh, month in Britain, I had to put everything I wanted to change through a, th a thing called the technical committee. Right. The technical committee, I think, had 13 or 14 people on it, <laughs> all officials and a committee. Well, committees never work. <laughs> I was going to so, say, that doesn't seem like that would work for you. So committees, I thought, nah. And these technical officials were all over 70 years of age. Mm. 
but they're living in the past. Yeah. So I, I sat through one meeting, had about four or five naps, <laughs> ate a lot of scones, drank a lot of coffee, and my, my right-hand girl was there, Sylvia Armiger, whose husband is a coach uh, in Loughborough. I said to Sylvia, the next meeting, I want you to buy 13 or 14 never, these little cameras, disposable cameras, vases and bunches of flowers and a box of chocolates. <laughs> so the next meeting I went, I stood each person up, got them to take photos, get their box of chocolates and say, I want to thank you for everything you've done. I'm pretty sure. But don't come back. <laughs> I don't want to see you again. Uh, I've got to replace you with people who, and, and this is, and I have a philosophy, uh, Brett, you never work for a board who doesn't desire winning more than you desire success. If the board isn't passionate and dedicated to winning, you have no chance. Yeah. So eventually you're going to clash with them. So anyway, I replaced these old guys and girls, ladies, on the, the technical board with a, a group of driven coaches. Right. But I didn't put the old coaches on. I put the young, enthusiastic coaches on, the Ben Titleys, Dave right. McNally, right. Uh, these coaches on that committee. <clears throat> and, of course, it caused a revolution. Yeah. The old coaches were beaten up about it, uh, the officials. As it turned out, Brett, my greatest support base in the United Kingdom for change was these old officials. Because when I tell them not to come back, I said, but I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come whenever you want me to your area, your district, and run a clinic there. Mm. So you can go back to your uh, district knowing that you're not wanted at this meeting, but you can say to your uh, substitute uh, that he's willing to come and do a clinic for us. I've been able to secure bills. Uh, so I did that religiously. Wow. And uh, I'd do it at national championships. I'd have a, a group of these places, these districts or clubs, and I would do a presentation. So I respected them right. uh, uh, way above the station. And uh, what I did do, I looked at a couple of areas in, in Britain that didn't want anything from me. When you become a head coach, everybody has expectations on them. So I went to a couple of districts or clubs that didn't have any, they were way, way below where they would have any expectations of me. And I said to them, look, I'm going to come down to your club and visit you every six weeks. I'm going to spend two to three days here and I'm going to work with your coach and your athlete. And, uh, you know, way, way, these are way below. What it did, it gave me an ear to the world in Britain. Because they would say, oh, you know, Southern Districts is a bit irritated with you because you didn't do this or you didn't do that. Right. I could then address the weaknesses in my system. So I didn't think my system was going to be 100% right for Britain. I was aware that Britain was different than Australia, but this way I could stay in touch. And then I appointed John Atkinson, who was a, a POM anyway, because I worked with him in Australia, and he had the same ability <coughs> to read British swimming better than I could. So I made up for my weaknesses 
<clears throat> or lack of understanding with people who did have it right. and got them on side. Right. I was going to ask you that. I was like, do you do you feel like you're a good delegator? Uh, I, I, I feel uh, strongly that I am probably the best delegator in the world. <laughs> Many will argue with that, but I, I understand that if you want something done, that you have a limited time and influence. Yeah. And you can't do everything yourself. Right. I gave that advice to Alan Thompson when he was the head coach of Swimming Australia. He said, Alan, you're trying to do too much. You're trying to do everything. Yeah. And if you try to do everything, you're going to do some of them badly. They're not going to remember the good things you did. They're going to remember the bad things you did. So if you delegate, you don't have those issues. You've got to find people that you can trust. And for me, it was these young, new generation of coaches. These are the people. I think you, I think Fred Benu tells the story of uh, the, uh, the year without Christmas. We went to the short course championships in, uh, uh, in uh, one of the Nordic countries up north. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, we had the European short course. It was, nine, it was uh, 2007. And I said to the coaches on the last day of competition, do you want to be on the Olympic team in 2008? If you do, ring your family and tell them you're not coming home for Christmas. I've got your flights cancelled until the 1st of January. We're going to stay here for a week and plan the Olympics. I need your support. I need you to be, but I can't give you Christmas off. Wow. You have to have Christmas away. I want to see who could and who couldn't. Yeah. So I want you to bring your family. Fred Manu said it was the toughest thing he's ever had to do to ring his wife and do it and say, I'm not coming home for Christmas. Mm. We're having a clinic here. And it, of course it got everybody's attention. Everybody wanted to listen. And uh, Ben Titley was irritated by this, arrived the first day of the meeting after he thought he was going home an hour late. And the, and the girl that was running it, she said, now, we're not doing anything until everybody's here. And, of course, Ben arrives about an hour late and she said to everybody, okay, come and get me when he arrives, which he did. She said, now, coaches, you've been sitting here for an hour waiting for Ben. What's the consequence of his arrogance of not coming to the meeting on time. There's 11 people in this room, plus myself. That's 12 hours of wasted time. Yeah. Now, Ben, what are you going to do? So Ben had to face the consequence. And that was the first lesson that we learned, or that that coaches learned, I learned as well, of this situation. So I think you say, oh, what? People said to me, oh, you couldn't do that again now. I think, yes, you can. If you want something bad enough, there's always a price to pay. So the price has to be equal to the reward. So, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you that too. Like, you know, they're, they're, um, it seems like you, you're sacrificed. Well, it's not, it's not sacrifice, right? Like that's not the right word, but you put a lot into being successful. You know, you've got to be committed to the success. 
I only ever wanted winning. I know you can't always have winning, but it should be the only considered option. Winning for me has to be the only considered option. And there's three ways to win. You win on your strengths. You win on your personal strengths, be it physical or mental or development or preparation, or you win on your opposition's weakness. You're smart enough to see the weakness and exploit it, be predatory in seizing opportunity. The third one is a combination of both, your strengths and predatory in, in identifying the weakness of your opposition. But they're the only three. So every, all your preparation has to be centred around those three processes. So remember, I'm working in those days, Brett, with a team that uh, only made two finals at the Sydney Olympics. And I'm trying to get them to be number three in the world, which they did. In, in, in uh, Beijing, they were number three in the world yeah. on medals, point score. Uh, and uh, uh, personal bests. Right. So uh, people criticise me for those strategic, as I call them, issues. But the facts are the scoreboard says I was right. For sure. The scoreboard. But it was only right because these young coaches, these young, enthusiastic, special coaches bought into the process and right. believed in me mm-hmm. and, and went with me. If they had a not gone with me, I wouldn't have been able to achieve it. Yeah. It was achieved because of the buy-in from a new breed of coach. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it showed in the results. And I'm interested in that because it's 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 fascinating to for someone to come in and, and you know, they talk about culture change and culture shift within programs that aren't doing well. And so how do you how do you affect culture and how do you change culture? And uh, I guess it's, it's certainly a process, but you didn't have time to, to sit and wait for the, all those years for it to happen. You had to make it happen, but, but you had to have that buy-in as well. And it seemed like that there was a built-in accountability within that as well. Everybody, everybody from the girl in the office doing the bailouts was accountable and responsible. Right. Everybody, 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 uh, the Formula One driver, uh, Vettel. Yep. I don't know if you're familiar with Formula Sebastian. One. Sebastian? Yes. Every time he had a win, he sent everybody in the office a thank you note with a box of chocolates. Mm-hmm. From the little girl who sat at the reception, who didn't even know what Formula One was pretty much, everybody got a thank you note and a box of chocolates. Wow. It made them part of the success, but yeah. you didn't make them part of the failure. Uh, Schumacher said to me, I worked with him a bit, he said to me, Bill, when, the, when I win, the team's responsible. When I lose, I'm accountable. Right. Pretty strong statement. Yeah. Very so I think if you can develop that into your team, it all comes back to attitude. You know, if you have can change attitude, you'll change culture. If you try to change culture without changing attitude, no change. Right. So accountability and responsibility uh, uh, for character and attitude yeah. will give you um, what you want. 
Yeah. Well, mate, um, we, we had an experience together. Uh, I can't remember the exact competition. I know we went to a world short course. You were the head coach of that. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was. I think cool. it was maybe 90, 99, was it? Like that, yeah. yeah, we had one experience together. And, and one of the things that really sticks out to me is like, I'd heard things about you, you know, everyone had an opinion on, on the leadership, right? And so I'd never really met you. But um, I do remember this, when you came in as the head coach, I remember you respected me as an as an elder swimmer at the time, and also somebody that was a sprint swimmer. And I remember you telling me that it, it was that process of like listening, like, I don't know, as much about sprint. So I'm going to trust you, Brett. I trust you to get the job done. I'm not going to try and tell you the way I want you to do things. It was like, I trust you to do it. I'm here to help. And I really appreciated that. That's something that's stuck with me for a very long time. Uh, that's great, Brett. Uh, that's good. I think that's uh, the coaching attitudes that are required today is um, know what you know, know what you don't know, but listen to people who do know. Yeah. So, yeah, so. A, lot, a lot to learn. I've always believed in that. So, yeah. Great. Well, mate, listen, I've held you up a long time. I really appreciate you sharing all this. This has been awesome. It's great to catch uh, up again. Um, yes. It's after so long, Brett. It's great. Yeah, too long. But um, you've very- had a great, you've had a great coaching career, mate. You should feel good about it. Well, you've listen, I, I, um, <laughs> I, I got lucky a little bit because look, I, I, yeah, I was part of. Uh, a team and but I was I was part of a, a, a guy you know a guy's performance who won a gold medal just two years into my coaching career you know so I started coaching in 2006 with David Marsh under David Marsh at Auburn and and then he let me work with this young kid by the name of Caesar Cielo and and trusted me and then two years later he ends up winning the gold medal so look I don't profess that and then I get this thing from Asker to say that I'm a level five coach and I I, I was like I've only been coaching two years I'm not level five like come on so I was I was under no illusion that I didn't have the experience you know I I, I knew what I knew and uh, and I had a connection with a certain swimmer but there, it was a long road uh, beyond that of, of just gathering a lot of knowledge and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of learning along the way. Uh, I certainly was not a master coach after two years. That's for sure. Yeah. But uh, uh, Brett, the thing that you just said, connection. Yeah. <clears throat> you had a connection with the athlete. Yeah. That's so important. Yeah. That's so so, so important. That was the biggest key, yeah. It, was, it wasn't so much what I knew or how we were doing it. It was more of the connection we had and, um, you know, just just trusting him, him trusting me. So, yeah. But listen, I think, I, yeah, what, what were you going to say? I think coaches, uh, uh, you have a, a choice, uh, change-based improvement or improvement-based change. Mm. So... If you've got improvement, then that gives you reason to change things. If you change things, hoping for improvement doesn't always happen. So you went with the athlete on a basis of improvement-based change. You saw him improve and continue to develop those strategies, something that very few coaches can understand or address. They try to change things hoping for improvement, yeah. Or they get improvement, whichever way they get it, and then they change things to redevelop that strategy. Yeah. So I always look for uh, improvement-based change. Yeah. So if athletes, 
athletes uh, retire and get out of the sport, not because they don't win gold medals anymore, but because they fail to improve. Yeah. So your job as a coach to understand that process. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, congratulations, mate, all you've done. That's a... Uh, well, I appreciate it. Look, I've had, I've had great mentors and great influences like you. I've been very blessed to have people like you in my life and I'm very thankful. And I want to, I want to sit here today and thank you for what you did for me. Even if it was just a short period of time, you definitely had an influence on me. So I'm very thankful for that. Now, one of the things I do remember, Brett, mm-hmm. is you and a, two other athletes at the function at the night of that competition you mentioned, did your haircuts the same with me and Lee Nugent. That's right. You remember that? That's right. Yeah, that's that right. Was so funny. And now yeah. I'm stuck with it for the rest of my life. Look at that. <laughs> well, that was a funny night. We did. We had a lot of fun. It was, and then, yeah. and you you provided an opportunity for us to be loose, and and that's that's what brought out the best in us. It was a, it was a fun competition because of that. So, yeah, loved it, mate. Uh, yep, good to see you, mate. Take care, okay. All the best, Brett. Keep up the great work, mate. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Take care. Great example for coaches around the world. Appreciate you, mate. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.